Hey Metro, I want to introduce you to a couple of great friends of mine. Uh, everybody, this is Sean and Teresa Williams. Uh, they've been around Metro forever. You guys have served in a hundred different ways and you're so involved now. Um, and you have quite a story when it comes to your married life, don't we, you? We do, we do. Yeah. Uh, how long you guys been married? I'm going on 27 years this year. Woo, newlyweds. Yep. Just... Yep. And uh, it has been a bit of an up and a bit of a down. It a is. bit of an up and a bit of a down for you guys. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Um, what was it like uh, at the beginning stages and what happened? Well, we got married. It was the newlywed phase, right? We were young in love. Um, things were new and fresh. Um, and then I kind of got self-centered. Um, I was very selfish in my personal desires. I was a workaholic. Um, I was into sports. Mm. So if I wasn't working, I was gone from the home playing sports. Yeah. Um, left Teresa with yeah. you know, two beautiful girls at home to raise by herself, kind of like almost like a single mother. And how long did this period go? Oh goodness, there's probably, there probably a good 15 years of our marriage oh. that, uh, that it was like that. It was, um, we were just surviving. We yeah. really weren't thriving at all. How, how did you feel, Teresa, during all of this? Because it went downhill pretty quick. It did, it was rough. Um, lonely, very lonely. Um, he had a lot of expectations for me and I never seemed to be able to meet them. Um, and I was doing it on my own. Yeah. Um, for the most part. And you're like, where's my husband? I thought we were a team. I thought we were <laughs> together. And, and so Sean, you really vacated them. You were there providing and all that kind nope. of thing. Uh, and, and, but you weren't there. Correct. In, in a lot of ways, it was the American marriage story. Oh, for sure. Yep. Literally thousands, millions of couples are, are just like this. And right. you're just kind of limping along. And when did you finally realize you were in trouble as a couple? Hmm. Probably my 40th, maybe my 40th birthday. Well, <laughs> I knew something was keeping us together. A lot of prayer. Um, I'd been a Christian but I knew um, our marriage needed God desperately and yeah. I prayed a lot. Um, but and, 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 uh, you, you were walking with Christ. You were, you were trying to walk with Christ, but Sean, you, you were, it wasn't a big deal for no, you at all. No, it was a, I was a, you know, every few months kind of go to church on occasion, but it was always an excuse not to, you know, yeah. golf is on Sunday morning, so course, you can't, yeah, can't you go to church and golf. So, yeah, you can't have you one. Know. You gotta pick your God. You gotta pick yeah. your God. Mine was a golf course back That's in the right. day, so. Yeah, and so uh, you're praying like crazy. So I'm praying like crazy. Um, around his 40th birthday, um, the girls were starting to graduate, and I thought, I'm not sure we're gonna make it. Um, so for his 40th birthday, I bought him a watch, and I signed it from your girls, um, because honestly, I didn't think that we would be together much longer. Wow, so you thought you were running out of time. Yeah. Yeah, and so, how did you get clued into this? What happened was God laid on my heart um, that I needed to let Sean lead. Um, he'd been saved a few years earlier, but really hadn't embraced um, his relationship with Christ. So my daughter um, told us about Metro. So I visited once with my daughter and then I invited him because I knew this was where I wanted to be. Um, and I was hoping that, that he would think the same thing. Um, so we came here. Um, I remember walking into the auditorium and sitting in the back row because you got to sit in the back row in case you got to make a fast exit. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I remember sitting there and Chad playing and you preaching and um, just never felt that in my heart before. I just felt the spirit of God just stirring in me. Um, yeah. 
I remember it was funny, we were driving in the car, um, our daughter in the back seat, and I remember saying something to the effect of, you know, hey, I can't wait to go back to church next week. Wow. <laughs> um, you know, that was, you know, that was really interesting. And her and my daughters kind of looked at each other like, oh my gosh, don't say anything. Dad yeah. wants Is to go back dad? to church. Is this really yeah. dad? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then it just snowballed from there. Um, wow. Got into serving opportunities and got into life groups yeah. and just found a home here. Because of the work of Christ and your involvement in the local church, your whole family is different. Your whole life, your whole marriage, and oh, yeah. uh, you're now part of the marriage mentoring team. Yep. And uh, you guys mentor uh, other couples in our church who are struggling a little bit and trying to help them along. and. God has used you guys in some pretty incredible ways. And so if you had one piece of advice that you would give a couple, uh, maybe a young couple or maybe a struggling couple, what would that be? Um, I think that would have to be to put God in the center of your marriage. Um, when God's the focal point of your marriage, um, He will restore your marriage. Yeah. Uh, marriage is meant to thrive, not just survive. Yeah. Um, and, and when God's in the center of it, he does wonderful, wonderful things. It's and he different. has done wonderful yeah. things in our marriage. Thank you guys for being a great example to so many. Way to go. Thank you. And thanks for serving us. It's our pleasure. Yeah. The guy still can't hit a golf ball. I can tell you that right now. But what an amazing story. I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors. Are you guys ready to go? I mean, really ready to go? At both of our campuses, we are so excited that you're here. I think you are in the right spot to hear something from God tonight. Uh, can I just be brutally honest to start this whole thing off? Can I, can I do that with you? Married life, married life is hard work. Being married takes a lot of hard work. There's no doubt about it. I mean, if you're out there and you're going, I'm, it's hard enough just trying to find somebody to connect with and to maybe get married to, you think that's hard? You ain't seen nothing yet until you actually do find that person. It takes hard, hard work. Um, I've had the privilege over the years of literally officiating hundreds of wedding ceremonies. I'm gonna tell you something. I'll just be honest since I'm on a roll already. Uh, they're all the same. They all start off the same. Everything is beautiful. Everything is wonderful. She's beautiful. He's handsome. Uh, you hear the same things. I just know that we were created by God to be together. Uh, there's something special in this. It's going to be amazing. Life together is going to be off the charts. It's just going to be wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. But you know what the problem is, right? You wake up the next morning next to each other. And reality starts to set in very, very quickly. It just doesn't take very long right, married people, to figure out that married life is hard. I mean, it takes a lot, and I mean a lot of work. Truth is, years later, and sometimes just months later, they end up in offices like mine. Couples end up in offices like mine. And, and here's what I hear all the time. I think I married the wrong one. I don't know who this person is. There's something wrong with her. She's just altogether different. I can't believe him. He is so out of control. What am I going to do? And they look at me. And they say, I don't think we're going to make it. This is hard. And I don't think we're going to make it. Friends, I want to be honest. Married life takes hard work. 
but it is worth it. And when it works and works well, there is nothing better. It is an amazing thing. And married life is hard work, but with the right investments, listen to me, with the right investments, it can be something beautiful. It can be something extraordinary. So we're in our series called the the Comeback Series, and we've been talking about this idea that every single one of us, you, me, every one of us, there is an area of life that has gotten away from us. There's a part of life that you wish could be different, and if you could change it, you would change it. You would admit that there is an area of life, at least one area, that you need to come back in, that it's not what you want, and you want to get it better. And today, we're going to go after this idea that a whole bunch of us need to come back in our married life. We need to come back in this relational world. And you may be in this room and you're not married and you're thinking about one day you might be or maybe you're on the other side of marriage and you're going, I'm never getting back into that again. No way, right? The point is, is that there's a whole bunch of hurt that's often surrounded by this thing called married life. And I want to talk about it today. I think it's worth everybody listening to. I think it's important stuff. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to uh, just ask God's spirit to guide us into this very intimate and very sensitive topic. So if we could just pray together at both of our campuses, just bow your heads humbly before God and just let me ask God's spirit to guide us. Father in heaven, uh, we pray over the next moment or two that your spirit would invade our soul a little bit. And God, that we would be open to hear something from you today. This is a tough topic, um, a difficult topic for a whole bunch of people. And I pray, God, that you would do something extraordinary in spite of who I am. In Jesus' name, together we say, amen. Amen. Now, for those of you who are married, how many of you would say, you know what, I married somebody just a little bit different than me? Anybody a little bit different than me? How about a lot a bit different than me? A lot a bit? Now, here's the funny thing. When you're dating somebody, uh, those differences can be really cute, that, right? They, they can be cute, right? I mean, they, they, they are. And, and, and if you think about it, what do they say? They say opposites attract. attract. But you know what they say about opposites in marriage? Opposites attack. Yeah. It's very different. And married people in the room, you know that those things that used to be so cute when you are dating aren't so cute anymore. They begin to beat down on you a little bit. They begin to get under you a little bit and they begin to grate on the marriage itself and destroys, slowly destroys the relationship. So, so let's uh, just kind of a, a show of honesty here. How many of you would say that in your married life, uh, you're, you're the punctual one. You're like on time. You want to be five minutes early. Anybody in the room? Anybody in the room? Anybody? But you're, you're married to somebody who is a little bit more creative with their time. Right? So if, if you're like on that side of the, like, of the coin, go ahead, just raise your hand whenever you want. We'll wait. Go ahead. Right? So how, how many would say in married life, uh, you're the planner. Like you, you want the details and you want to plan and you plan your trips, you plan your nights out and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but you're married. Some of you have figured out that you're married to a bit of a hippie. And they just kind of float a little bit. And their idea of planning is let's just go until the gas runs out and that's fine. Right? Anybody in the room married to somebody like that and they're opposite? At, f- at first, oh, he's spontaneous and that's really cute. Now it just, it just flips you out, right? Because it's not going to happen. It's not, it's not good, right? So how many of you would say in, in married life, um, 
that you're the, the, you're the, the spender. There's a spender in your relationship, and you're like, money, that's what it's made for. It's made to spend. Let's go. I'm taking you out. Let's do it. We don't care what it costs. Spenders in the room, okay? Uh, how about the opposite? Do we have any spenders married to a saver? And any savers in the room? Savers? You are the godly ones. I'm telling you right now, you're doing it right. You're kind of like going, hey, we got only so much to go around here, and this has to last to the end of the month and maybe even the end of our life, right? And so uh, how about this? How about this? How many in the room you would say, you know what? I'm a bit of a neat freak. I'm a bit of a neat freak. Neat freak, anybody in the room? Neat freak? But you end up marrying somebody who is a slob. Anybody? Hands up. Wow, all over. I'm sorry, man. Praying for you. It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. Uh, but, but it's true, right? Like opposites attract and, and it can be cute and in dating it can be fun and, and it's all right because if you were both the same, if you were both the same, one of you would not be needed, right? So it's okay to be different. But you do realize the problem is that the goal of marriage is to become one. And when you're living with somebody else, all those little things, what happens, friends? What, what happens? They start adding up to big things. And what starts off as a small little point of contention becomes a major point of conflict later. Things tend to grow and things tend to spin out of control. And friends, when things start to spin out of control, here's what happens. Here's what happens every time. Trust is broken. Intimacy is broken. All of a sudden, lies start creeping their way into a relationship. Hearts begin to break and the relationship begins to pull apart. And then the lack of forgiveness sets in quick. And bitterness consumes the soul. And it doesn't end well. You see, little things can grow up into very, very big things. And and let me tell you something, friends. Here's what happens. When you have two very different people, you know the, one of the big problems in marriage is that you're both human and you both sin and you both screw things up. You're both less than perfect. And somehow, God wants to take two very imperfect people and put them together. But the problem becomes is that it becomes unraveled very, very quickly. And, and at once, one time in, in your marriage, Maybe when the first started, maybe the first year or two, maybe even the first decade, all the love songs you hear, they made sense to you, right? You hear a love song and you smile. And, uh, but now you're in divorce court and nothing makes sense to you. This happens to far too many of us and it happens way quicker than we ever thought possible. Can I just tell you something? God does not want that for you. He doesn't. He does not want to see another broken family. He does not want to see another hurting couple. God wants something bigger and better for you. Now, let me just hit the pause button. Because when you talk about this idea that marriage is hard, but with the right kind of investments, listen to me, with the right kind of investments, it can be a beautiful thing. It can be an amazing thing. But when you hear this kind of stuff, some of you are already in your mind, you're pushing back and you're going to go, you have no idea what I'm living through. I am living like on hell, in hell on earth. That's what I'm living in because my husband is an abuser or my 
wife, she's just, she's running around and, and uh, she doesn't really value this thing called marriage. You have no idea how hard I've tried and I'm, I'm married to a man who's an egomaniac and, and self-absorbed and, and abusive and, 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 and I'm just his doormat, right? Are you saying, people, people, you might be going, are you saying that God wants me to put up with this? That I'm supposed to be somebody else's doormat all of my life? No. I'm not saying that at all. As a matter of fact, I'm saying just the opposite. That God doesn't want you to remain in a relationship where you're abused, where illegal things are happening, where wrongful things like that are happening, where you are somebody else's doormat. I would say to you that the best thing for you is to get out and get help, to always protect yourself, to always protect your children. Maybe the best option for you right at the start is to separate for a little while to figure out what the future needs to look like. You hear me? You hear me? God does not call you ever to stay in an abusive situation. Now, let me talk about another thing. When we even talk about this idea of marriage in general, as soon as I bring it up, here's what happens all across the room. You start to feel guilty because many of you in this room, you sat in my office, I know you. And you have been through the ringer when it comes to this thing called married life and it did not end like you wanted. And there are some in this room where, where you worked really, really hard at it and you did everything that you could and it still ended terribly, terribly. And, and then there's others in this room where looking backwards in your life, you, you know that you made terrible mistakes and there's a whole bunch of us in this room that if you could go back and do it all over again, you would do it different. You, would, you realize there are some mistakes that you made. If you could change, you would change them in a heartbeat. You would set a whole different tone, a whole different direction for your life. And so guilt is pressing in on you. And let me tell you something. Can, can I just tell you what God wants from you? And I'm speaking for the, for the Lord in this. He does not want you to live in the guilt of your past. As a matter of fact, the scripture says it very, very plainly. It says, it says, I press forward. I look forward. I forget what is behind me. Listen, I, we all have a past, amen? And we forget what's behind us and we move forward to something better, to something that God wants. We learn from the past. We grow from the past, but we do not live in our past. We don't and we can't. Something better has to happen in our life. And so what I'd like for us to get around today is this idea that from this day forward, unless it's like one of those abusive situations, but from this day forward, I want us to figure out how to work on our marriages. I want us to figure out how to have this comeback to what is vitally important to many of us. I want us to figure out some steps that can move us toward having what God wants us to have. And so I'd like to begin by going into the scriptures. I want us to look at something that Jesus said. This is profound. It is powerful. It's found in the book of Matthew, chapter 19. Matthew, chapter 19. I'm just going to read a few verses for you. Uh, starting in verse 3. Here, here's what it, what, what's going on. Jesus is being confronted by this group of Pharisees. Now, you remember who the Pharisees are. They are the religious kind of slash political leaders. Uh, they, they're the holier-than-thou crowd. They're the ones who are pointing at everybody, pointing down at everybody, trying to make everybody feel like they're not living up at the highest levels like they are, the, that everybody's less than them. They're, they're kind of self-righteous, and they're making sure that, he, they know, that you know that you're not where they are. Does that make sense? So that's this Pharisee group of religious leaders, and they come 
to Jesus and they try to trap him in a very controversial subject. They ask him about marriage and divorce. And listen to Jesus' reply. They ask him about marriage and divorce. Here's what it says. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him and they asked this question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, pause for a moment. It's kind of an odd question, right? It's phrased completely from a male perspective, right? Is it okay for a man just to be tired of his wife for any reason at all and just get rid of her? Because remember, in this culture, there was no welfare system, social security system, alimony, palimony, any kind of monies out there. That wasn't the system, right? And you do realize when these words were spoken, when this question was spoken, women, you were property. That's all you were. A man would own a donkey, a man would own a dog, a man would own a cow, just like he would own a wife. They were property. And, and, and there's tension in this question because, in, especially in the religious community, what, what, what they were thinking is this, is like, they're going, well, is, does this please God? Because in a culture where women were nothing more than property, if Jesus answers, no, 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 men, you got to treat women in a different way, that's going to set them going off on a crazy direction, right? Jesus is trying to change everything. He's, they're trying to catch him. You see what he's doing here, what they're doing? But if he was to say, it's okay just to treat women any way you want, then people are going to go, well, such, what kind of guy are you? It's just be some godly man. So you see the tension here, right? There's this tense question, this debate that's raging about this issue. Look at Jesus' response because, listen to me, he not only raises the bar, he changes the game. He goes so far above and beyond. This was, this was incredibly radical teaching in its day. And here's what he says. So the question is, is, is it okay for a man just to get rid of a woman if, if, uh, if she ups, uh, upsets him in some way? And then Jesus replies, listen to this, haven't you read somewhere? And he takes them right back to the book of Genesis, which almost all Jewish people would have known this story. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made the male and female. And then he said this, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. For the two will become, at both of our campuses, the two will become one flesh. The two shall become one. And then he goes on to say this. So they are no longer two, but one. Friends, Jesus changes the whole goal of marriage. You see what he's saying here? He's saying that the goal of marriage is oneness. The goal is not to own your wife like she's a piece of property, but it is to become one with her, one in pursuit, one in dreams, one in goal, one in affection, one in love, one in community, to become one with her. And he was saying to the women, the goal of your life is not just to serve your man, but it is to connect with your man, to love your man, to care for him, and for him to care for you, to have this symbiotic relationship where the two become one, right? And he's not saying that this idea of oneness means that you don't have a personality anymore. He's not saying that when, when Lynette and I get married, that, that Lynette's personality goes away or Jeremy's personality goes away or the desires or the wants or the talents or the giftedness uh, just goes away, that you can't have an opinion in life. He's not saying it at all. Not at all. What he's saying is that when you get married, something amazing happens. Something divine happens. Something supernatural is supposed to happen. And it's that the math of life no longer works. You hear me? The math that we all know where one plus one equals two, he says that doesn't apply anymore. 
Because in married life, the way God wants it to happen, he's saying the math goes one plus one equals one. The two shall become one. And then Jesus drops this bomb on them. You ready? He says, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. He's saying that God puts this oneness together. It's like two pieces of paper and you glue them together and you get it all hard together and then now try to separate that paper. What would you do if you tried to separate two pieces of paper that have been glued together? You would tear it apart. And friends, listen to me. Look at me. This is why divorce hurts so badly, like unlike anything else. I remember when my mom went through her divorce, she said, this is worse than your father dying. It is because the two have become one and the one is being torn apart. It's like your heart, your soul, your your very essence of who you are is being torn away from you. And it's brutal, not only for the husband and the wife to go through that, but for the family, for the kids, for everybody. Because why? We We are forming this union of oneness. And divorce literally tears it apart. So it doesn't matter what you think theologically about divorce. We can all agree that divorce hurts. Am I right? That divorce is painful. That, it's, that it, it tears apart. Uh, one of my favorite pastors out there, not your favorite pastor because that's me, um, but Andy Stanley, uh, he, he says it like this. You can't unone what God made one. You can't unone what God made one. But the problem with our culture is it's kind of obvious, right? We view marriage like it's some sort of contract to enter. But marriage is not a contract. Marriage is a covenant. And, and you know the difference, right? Marriage is, is a covenant, not a contract, not, a, not at all. Um, think about a contract for a moment. A, a contract is based around one thing. Think about when you enter a business deal. What, what's a contract based around? Mutual distrust, right? I don't trust you. You don't trust me. That's why we're going to write it all down and you're going to obey the letter of the law, right? It is built around this idea of mutual distrust. Every business deal is. Uh, It it basically says, I'm in as far as you're in. As long as I get out what I put in, we're even up. It's a deal, right? It's a contractual deal. Um, For for example, uh, when, when I was 18, uh, Lynette and I got married and we bought our first rental home. It was one of those duplexes where there's two houses in one. Uh, and, and this was like one of the most brilliant moves I've ever done in my whole life. Uh, we're, we're newlyweds, we have no money, uh, and we're living in one half of it and the schmuck on the other side is paying the entire bill. Glory to God. <laughs> Glory to, to God, right? And, and so we've, we've had rentals all of our, our, our married life. And, and what, what do we do when somebody wants to rent one of our homes? You sign a contract. You sign a deal. And, and what does a contract do? Listen, listen to what a contract does. It, it limits my responsibilities and expands my rights. It limits my responsibility, but it increases my rights. That's what a contract does. Every single time. If you screw me, I'm going to screw you. If you break the covenant or the contract, I'm going to come after you, right? Because we have a deal, right? And, and think about a contract. Uh, what, what do we do? We, we put a time stipulation. We put money in on it, right? You give me this, I give you that. That's a contract. But marriage isn't like that. Any married people in the room? Marriage does the exact opposite. It limits your rights, 
and expands your responsibilities. It's just the opposite. It calls you to a new level. It calls you to a new level of sacrifice, a new level of intentionality with your life, right? Uh, marriage is built around a covenant. I don't know, have you heard of the term covenant at, at, at our video campus? Have you heard of the term covenant? It's a powerful thing. The idea of a covenant, uh, it comes from a Hebrew expression, and it's the word berith. And the word berith is, it, it literally means a blood, a blood oath, right? Uh, the idea was this, that if you were to look in the pages of the, of the Old Testament, and if you were to look at ancient culture, the Hebrew culture, when, when two sides were coming together, and they wanted to go beyond a handshake, when they wanted to make a covenant where lives were put together, where people groups were put together, they would make a covenant with one another. And it was a blood offering. They would cut, now this gets a little bit crazy, they would cut a, a cow or a heifer or a bull down the middle. And they would take this cut animal and they would place it on one side and the other side, leaving this kind of pathway in between. And, and the two parties that were coming together to make a covenant would walk through together, through this, this bloody offering, if you will. And they would walk through seven times, seven times they would go through. And at the seventh time, the point was, is that they would be reminded if they don't fulfill this covenant, may it be to me like it was with this animal. It was a blood oath. It wasn't just a little contract about making a little business deal. It was a serious business. As a matter of fact, in ancient days, this is the coolest thing. Um, when a young Hebrew couple got together and they wanted to be married, they would stand before the priest of God they would stand before the man of God and, and they would join their lives together. And at one point in the ceremony, this priest would take the hand of the groom first and he would just slice the groom's palm and it would be a little bit of blood. And then he would grab the hand of the bride and he would slice her palm. And then he would do what? Put them together as a blood oath. And then he would take a cord and he would wrap them together. And then he would say, what God has joined together, let no man separate. You see, because the book of Leviticus says that it is in the blood where life is found. Anybody, when you're a kid, make a little blood contract, you poke your finger, you poke another guy's finger, and you're like, we're buddies for life, we're blood brothers, right? Maybe we should start doing that in all of our weddings here at Metro. All right, give me your hands, come on, right? Right? But you see this picture. It is a different level of commitment. Uh, like if you enter my contract to rent one of our rental houses, we'll give you a year-long deal. We'll say, hey, after a year, you can go. I'll kick you out. You kick me out, whatever. It's fine. After a year, you're done. But a covenant is a permanent relationship that God puts together. It's bigger. It's bigger. It's better. It's meant to last forever. And this is one of the reasons why um, I tell couples around here all the time, I say, you get married in the church. You get married in front of one of your pastors. You get married in front of somebody who, who is a spiritual, biblical mentor to you, somebody who plays that role in your life. Don't you run down to the justice of the peace. Now, if you did that, it's not a big deal. Sorry for offending you. I'm just saying, y'all ought to get married in, before God. And you ought to bring God right into the middle of it. Because it is bigger than a contract. It is a covenant. 
It is a covenant. And you will stand before God like I stood before God. Because one day my pastor stood in front of me 28, 9 years ago, something like that, a long time ago. And he said this. He said, Jeremy, do you take Lynette to be your wife, to have and to hold, anybody, from this day forward, for better, for worse, for sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, forsaking all others, do you vow to be faithful to her as long as she makes you happy? <laughs> no, no, he did. as long as she takes care of all of your needs, as long as she doesn't gain any weight, as long as she fulfills her end of the contract. No? What do you say? Do you vow before God to love her forever, forsaking all others until death, anybody, do us part? And, and I know we live in a world now that's revising all definitions, so I just think we ought to be on the same page. When it says, until death do us part, it literally means until one of you stops breathing. We all clear on that? That's the deal. That is the deal. But the problem becomes when we have the best of intentions, and most of us would say that is my goal. At least it was our goal. Anybody? Right? Even if you're divorced, you say, that was my goal. But the problem is, is when it doesn't work out that way. When, when it's not going in that direction. Where one of you maybe isn't showing up to the party day after day the way that they should. Matter of fact, have you heard of Billy Graham? Anybody hear of Billy Graham? Billy Graham was one of the great preachers in the world. He preached over uh, 200 million people live and in person. That's, I can barely get a few hundred of you guys to come to the service. It's crazy, you know. 200 million. He preached to billions more on television. God used this guy in incredible ways. Well, his wife was named Ruth. She passed on many years ago. And uh, godly woman, incredible woman. And she was often asked about her relationship with Billy. Billy was a superstar all over the world. And uh, Billy traveled a lot. And there was a lot of tension in that traveling. And uh, they would ask her, how, how do you get along with Billy? How, how do you handle all of this travel, especially raising a couple kids? And she was quite honest with it. She said it was a deep struggle. It was, it was very, very difficult. And uh, one day a reporter asked her, uh, have you ever thought about... Um, just divorcing Billy? I mean, all the travel, all the stress he puts you under and all that kind of stuff. And she goes, no. Never once thought about divorcing him. Thought about murdering him a number of times, <laughs> but never once thought about divorce, right? Uh, the, the truth is, listen, divorce often is spoken of when people start saying, well, I've kind of run out of love. Anybody ever hear that? I'm not in love anymore. Listen, to, to, to decide that you're going to divorce because you don't feel like you're in love anymore, it, it's like saying you need a new car when you run out of gas. Right? It, it, to, to say that like, things aren't going so good, my, my, my marriage is a little broken, I got some things, he just doesn't make me happy. Anymore. That is like saying I got to get rid of my car because it needs an oil change. What do, you, what do you do when your gas tank is empty? You refill it. When you think that you're out of love, this is when you seek God. And you ask God to fill you with a love that you cannot claim on your own. Do, do you hear me, friends? Listen, God just doesn't do love. He is love. And those who seek him 
and are serious about seeking him. Want more of him in our life. And when we want more of him, guess what he puts into our life? Love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and compassion and wisdom and decision making. He gives this to you because you seek him. And when you want more of him, he puts more of himself in you. He is these things. When your tank is empty, you ask God to fill it in a way that you cannot fill on your own. And here's the crazy thing I've heard from, from people who are Christians. And if you're not a Christian, this does not apply to you at all. But, but Christians say, I just don't love my husband anymore. I don't love my wife anymore. I don't know what happened. I just fell out of love. And, you know, I don't, I don't even, I just don't love. But I love God. Here's what, what the scripture says. If you're not a Christian, this does not apply to you. But for those of us who are Christians, it says, this is hard. It says, how can you love God whom you cannot see but despise your brother, your husband, your son, your neighbor who you can see? How can you say you love God when you don't love your husband? Your relationship with your husband or your wife is a reflection of your relationship with God. And the way that you love God is a reflection of the way that you love your wife or your husband. That is what the scripture teaches us as believers. And some of us, we need a comeback. We need to turn some things around. Because it will not be long before you are going to think that you are on empty and you are out of time and you have nowhere to go but down or divorce. And I'm going to tell you something, God does not want that. He does not want another broken family. Not one. Would you agree? So let me just give you two, um, I think, pieces of advice maybe that come right from the pages of Scripture that I think might help us have this comeback. And you may want to keep this in mind if one day you hope to be married. Here's the first thing. It comes from the book of Galatians. Both of these come out of the book of Galatians. Chapter 6, and I'm going to just read three very simple verses to you, okay? And here, here's what it says in Galatians chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 7. It says, do not be deceived. Don't fool yourself. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Y'all get me so far? He said, what you put into life is what you're going to get out of life. Don't blame God. Don't mock God. Don't say it's his fault. What you put into life is what you get out of life. Then he says this, whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh they will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit, from the spirit they will reap eternal life. Friends, listen, when you're empty, if you want to talk about this idea of marriage, this is when you seek God more so that his spirit fills you and moves you where you cannot be on your own. In any area of life where you need a comeback, this is why it says you, you, you sow to the spirit, you lean into the spirit of God for your life. And it doesn't matter the area of finances, health, education, relationship, friendships, uh, marriage. It does not matter. You lean into the spirit of God because why? The spirit of God wants to give you something. He wants to give you those things that lead to eternal life. The Bible says that he will give you wisdom when you ask of God. And listen to what it says next. Let us not become weary in doing good. But he makes me so mad. Let us not be weary in doing good. She irritates me so much. 
Let us not grow weary in doing good. For in the proper time, we will reap a harvest. And here's when we're going to reap a harvest. If you want something beautiful, if you, if you, want, to, if you want to achieve something, it says you will reap that when you sow into that. And if you do not give up. Is that all y'all got? If you do not give up. And so two very quick pieces of advice. Ready? Number one, you reap what you sow. You get what you give. Woo. Now, my wife, she'll say to me, if you want a little loving, maybe you ought to be a little bit more loving. Mm-hmm. Right? It's true, right? You get what you give. You get what you work on in life. Uh, Here's what we do. Here's what we do. In romance, in dating, we tend to maximize, maximize our our partner's strengths and we minimize their weaknesses. This is why when you're dating, you're going, oh, he's so perfect. I have finally found the, the one. He's made for me. She's made for me. She is so beautiful and breathtaking. Every word she says is just full of life and encouragement and wonder. It's amazing, 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 right? And this is why when you are dating someone, you work hard at it. You're not afraid to sacrifice and to serve them and to love them and to care about them, to go out of your way. Don't tell me when you're dating somebody, you don't go out of your way for them. It's like, yeah, I just happened to drive 42 miles out of the way just to spend three minutes at lunch with you. I got to go. Bye. Right? But you'll do that. You'll do that work. Why? Because you want it to work. You'll do the work because you want it to work. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. We tend to, when we get married, everything flips around. And all of a sudden, we tend, to, we, we tend to maximize our partner's weaknesses and minimize their strengths. Now, all of a sudden, you're married for like three weeks, and you're like, he can't do nothing right. He, is, he makes me so mad. I, she just, and you just, all of a sudden, there's all of this brokenness. And everything just flips around. You reap what you sow. You get what you give. And so what do we do? We end up trying to fix the other person. We try to make everything right with them. We try to say, you got to straighten up. You got to do this. You got to do that. Let me tell you something about marriage. Happiness in marriage does not so much depend on finding the right person as becoming the right person. Right? Happiness in marriage far more dependent not on what your partner gives you but on what you give them. Mark my words. And I got to learn this too. This is a struggle. So men in the room, look at me, men in the room. You lead her by giving more. You lead her by loving more, by serving more, by sacrificing more, by caring more, by lifting more, by encouraging more. Women in the room, listen to me. Would you follow a man like that? Come on, ladies, would you? Would you follow a man like that? I think so. My wife would. The more you give, the more you get. You reap what you sow. And here's the second thing. You reap where you sow. You reap where you sow. You you grow, you grow where you go. Listen, you don't plant a tree over here and go, oh, wait, 
and then it sprouts up over here. No, if you're looking for your tree to grow, you're looking over here because this is where you planted it, right? Right? Let me tell you something. You will never grow your relationship with the one that you say you love most in the world by loving golf more, by loving your hobbies more. If you invest more and more of your time at work, you will grow your paycheck, but not your marriage, not your family. If you, if you spend more and more time in your hobbies, you will become the best whatever. But what really matters will be a wreck. Because, listen to me, you reap where you sow. It's about investment. It's about what you're putting in is what you get out. It's about where you put it. Have you ever heard of the phrase, the grass is greener on the other side? Anybody? Come on, anybody? You know what I'm talking about? The grass is greener. Anybody in the back? You guys know? Um, that's not true. That is just simply not true. You know where the grass is greenest? Anybody? Where you water it. And if the grass is greener, it is because you're putting water on it. It's because you're fertilizing it. It's because you're paying attention to it. It's a, you're trying to get it to grow. It's like you're out there mowing it and going, come on, grow, grow, grow. Right? The grass is greenest where you water it. And friends, look at me. If you look around in life and you think the grass is greener somewhere else and with somebody else, I'm going to tell you right now that the water bill is higher over there. You're investing in the wrong things and the wrong people. If you find your little heart wandering, it is not so much her fault, it is your fault. It is not so much his fault as it is your fault. It is because you aren't investing in the thing that God has called you to invest in. You reap what you sow and you reap where you sow. Long time ago, I don't even know if it was a frank discussion, but I just can tell you this. Lynette and I decided that um, we would have the exactly the kind of marriage that we invested into. We decided a long time ago that we were going to get old. That we were going to get old together. And we looked around at what we saw in so many of our friends, so many of our family members. And we said we didn't want it. We wanted to do it different. And if it's going to end up any different for me and Lynette, it's because we are going to do it different. We're going to invest. It's hard, but it is worth it. We're going to invest in our life, our marriage, our family. And friends, it is the same for you. You will never get out what you do not give. If you don't invest, you'll be another victim of brokenness. Amen.